0: Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird, and it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months.
1: I know, you always eat a mouthful of chips right before the next segment where you have to talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman And I'm Hannah McGregor. At long last, bringing you part one of our discussion of the fifth book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And, because you've been so patient waiting for us to start this discussion, we promise that it will be action-packed with righteous feminist anger and sound effects.
1: (laughs) All the sound effects. But, before we can burn the world to the ground, we first need to sort it into tidy piles of kindling in the sorting chat. We have a couple of things to talk about in the segment. And the first and most important is obviously the revelation that um, the thing that puts out lights is still called a put-outer. Marcel, what do you have to say?
0: I'm I'm totally baffled by this because I know that it's called a deluminator, but I don't know when they start calling it a deluminator. If it's not yet, what if they never do? And what if I've just completely rewritten history? What if that's what's happened? What if it's like a Bernstein Bears... <laughs> esque kind of parallel universe where i'm so sure that it's called a deluminator but it's actually always been called a put-outer
1: the only way we can tell if it's actually a berenstein bears esque alternative universe is if a whole bunch of our listeners write to us on twitter and tell us whether they also remember being called a deluminator also if you guys find actual textual evidence that would also disprove this theory (laughs) uh maybe it's another mass delusion like the spelling of berenstein bears could be anything So the next thing that uh, we wanted to reference quickly is um, we get a little bit of a view of Harry with the Dursleys again at the beginning of this. We know that the ridiculous made-up 50s diet that Dudley was on in the last book has successfully resulted in Dudley being no longer fat, but still enormous. But now that his enormity is appropriate for his gender, um, he is able to, rather than being a useless member of society is able to become a violent member of society, which is much better. Mm-hmm. We also get some interesting views of the sort of violent uh, gendered environment in which Harry was raised, which might tell us something about why it is that Harry's knee jerk reaction towards people who are in any way gender subversive tends to be a pretty normative, uncomfortable one.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the first two chapters, Dudley Demented and A Peck of Owls, we get two distinct moments where the Dursley household's heterocentrism and homophobia really come to the fore. Um, So the first one in Dudley Demented is when Dudley is making fun of Harry in front of all of Dudley's friends about the nightmares that Harry has. And Dudley is saying, don't kill Cedric, don't kill Cedric. Who's Cedric? Your boyfriend? (gasps) Yeah. So the fact that Dudley turns to homophobic slurs as a way of taunting Harry is really telling. And then that is put into context. And how well
1: it works. Right. Yes. Like Harry rises to that bait. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Harry has internalized that homophobia. And then in the following chapter, when Harry is trying to explain to the Dursleys what happened to Dudley with the Dementors, and he's trying to explain what Dementors do and how they work, and Vernon jumps in and says, fought him off, did you, son? Gave him the old one-two? And Harry's trying to explain that you can't do that with Dementors, and Vernon Dursley is Completely baffled by this. He doesn't understand how you could escape from some kind of violent altercation or some kind of life threatening situation without fighting off whoever it is that's attacking you.
1: Yeah, it's punch based.
0: Yeah. And I really got the impression with those two things so close together that this explains, um, at least in part, a lot of Harry's, you know, knee jerk, heterocentric reactions to gender nonconforming or um gender subversive characters yeah the dursleys are super invested in heteronormativity mm-hmm. speaking of gender
1: non-conforming characters mm-hmm. um we want to take a brief moment to give a shout out we've already done this on twitter but we want to do it in the podcast too um for ron lit's excellent recent youtube video on um i think she's she's categorized it as unpopular harry potter opinions but Mm -hmm. it's very popular opinion with the two of us Um, which is that jk rowling's retroactive queering of dumbledore is a little bit bullshit Mm -hmm. Um, and her argument that it doesn't matter if you couldn't tell dumbledore was gay because gay people look just like us is also a little bit bullshit and we will send you all to go watch the video to explain why that is true because she um, puts it beautifully. But we also just wanted to point out that um, compared to Dumbledore, who is queer in the most textually invisible of ways, <laughs> we have some characters in this book, uh, one in particular, who are coded actually incredibly queerly, comparatively speaking.
0: Yeah, I noticed it right away when I was reading it that um, Professor Grubbly Plank, who we've met, we've met previously, but in this one in particular, she's um, she comes out of the staff room smoking a pipe. Um, <laughs> oh, she's got a monocle in her pocket <laughs> that she pulls out to like examine Hedwig when Harry shows her his roughed up owl to Professor Grubbly Plank. Like
1: she's got a short, no nonsense haircut and like a pronounced chin.
0: Yeah, much like Madame Hooch, who we mm-hmm. who when we meet her in the first book, we're also like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, Yeah. butch lesbian, Yeah, of course. And so we were talking about this and about how, like, there are tons of characters who are coded queerly in this series of books. And J.K. Rowling has never been like, oh, yeah, like, there's a huge team of lesbians who teach at Hogwarts. Like, duh. I don't disbelieve that Dumbledore was queer in her head the whole time. Um, And I
1: think it's equally likely that Madame Hooch and Professor Grubbly Plank mm, (laughs) – it's a hard (laughs) word to say – are also queer in her head what i care about is i don't care about author headcanon i care Mm -hmm. about textual evidence and it's just interesting to me that we've got some some sweet butch lesbians in this book um that suggests to me that like sometimes gay people don't look just like you and me sometimes they look like gay people And by you and me I mean other people because we are in fact gay people. So so sometimes gay people look like me. I definitely wear a monocle. Yes. It's
0: our alternative lifestyle haircuts that really give us away. That's how you know. It's the only way you can tell.
1: Oh, no. Okay, so one last important thing to talk about.
0: Yeah, we have to talk about Hedwig and the fact that she makes this triumphant return to the Witch Please podcast with all of the owl sound effects because she gets assaulted by Umbridge's cronies because that is the length that they will go to in order to spy on the students. (gasps) And Hedwig bears the brunt of that. And it's just awful. It's awful to read.
1: We've already had, um, even before that happens, a beautiful view of how fearless Hedwig is and how loyal she is to Harry, which is that um, he sends her out to deliver a note to Ron and Hermione and says she is not allowed to come back until she gets a response mm-hmm. and when and when he arrives at the burrow running her mind you're like Hedwig has been pecking the shit out of us <laughs> like you really need to call her off because she's like <laughs> keeps trying to kill us which you know owl can just take your eyes right out yeah. so that's actually pretty scary
0: owls will definitely peck out your eyes yeah.
1: yeah 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 for sure oh my god can I tell you a fun fact real quick yeah. so I just heard this on a podcast so it might not be true I take that back everything on podcast is true If a person dies in their home and are alone with their pets, a dog will eat everything else first, everything else that they can find in the house first. They will leave their owner until last. And then when they do eat them, they will start with like their hands and their feet, like the things that are sort of the furthest extremities with them. Cats, they will eat you right away and they start with your face. (laughs)
0: I am hanging out so close to your cat right now. I was just thinking I was like, Oh my god, my cat's face is so close
1: to your face. Cats like eating faces. Uh not Hedwig though.
0: No.
1: Yeah, so she's already proven that she's willing to go to some lengths. Um and then and then such a brutal betrayal that we see her victimized by these these just I mean, we already know these bad guys are bad. They are abusing children. Yeah. Um but the fact that in order to intercept an owl, they do like physical violence to this animal is just like really distressing.
0: Yeah, I also really like the point in the book when Harry hands Hedwig over to Professor Grubbly-Blank, and the look that she gives him is a look of betrayal. Like, where are you sending me? Why are you giving me away to another human being? you are my human
1: oh but it's also so wonderful that harry when encountering hedwig injured immediately seeks out an adult who can help
0: yes yeah that's probably the smartest thing that harry does in this book i think immediately going for help yeah
1: yeah he does not try to fix it himself with like a shitty spell which is his response like every other situation (laughs) but he's like oh sir no my pet's injured i need to find an actual adult good job harry
0: you know what makes good kindling? Books. That's what makes good kindling. So let's pay a visit to Flourisham Blots, our segment about material books and their material histories. I'm gonna go first.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I have an important story about this book. See, I have the original Canadian sort of rainforest printing of this book in hardcover, which I got when it first came out.
0: Raincoast, it's ancient forest.
1: Raincoast, I apologize. Ancient forest friendly, printed on 100% post consumer recycled paper. Good job, Raincoast books. Yep, yeah! yeah, so I have it. What it is missing is an important part of its paratext, which is the dust jacket. I do not have the dust jacket for this book. The reason why I do not have the dust jacket for this book is that I acquired this book while I was working at a certain large Canadian bookstore chain that shall remain unnamed for legal purposes. Whilst I was working at said chain, um, it was uh, an acceptable practice for employees to borrow unpurchased hardcover books that we had in adequate quantity from the store to read ourselves. And the way that we sort of took the books out was to take the dust jacket off, leave that with the management, and just take the book itself. But that meant That if you were seen leaving the store with a new hardcover with the dust jacket not on it people would just assume that you had taken it out and that became amongst disgruntled employees working for a large corporation that we didn't care about a very popular way to steal books take the dust jacket off you would hide it somewhere in your section and you would walk out with the book and that is definitely how i acquired this particular harry potter volume (gasps) It was, it is an ill gotten good, and I am really proud of that.
0: You know why that's especially appropriate for this episode is because we're talking about youths rising up against the powers that be who have too much power and are abusing those beneath them. And in your own way, Hannah, you contributed to a little bit of magical resistance. Good job.
1: I used to be a real riot girl. <laughs> Back before the institution tamed me.
0: <laughs> yeah, my story will not compare. As you can... There are crimes in it? No, there are no crimes. And I'm actually not even going to really tell a story about me. I'm going to... Well, I'm going to tell a ridiculous story that I overheard. Um, but <laughs> So listeners can't see this, but I'm currently holding the paperback edition of the Bloomsbury Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which was released in 2013. Um, so this is a very new edition. Looks it's, real modern. It's also the adult edition. So let me tell you why. Is it like full of dicks? <laughs> oh yeah, it's the adult edition.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you just gave me the blankest look.
0: I was like, "What are dicks?" <laughs> oh, dicks. <laughs> So I went on a trip and I was going to be gone for three weeks and I needed to read this book while away. And I didn't want to bring my copy because my copy is a first edition of the Canadian what Hannah has that one. Also, hardcovers are heavy. So Mm -hmm. I brought a paperback. But as you may remember from the episode when we talk about book four, I have a lot of feelings about the actual text and i don't like inappropriate paratext and so i was really struggling i've never been into buying adult editions ever except when they have lots of dicks <laughs> but i went to confront my demons to get the children's edition of harry potter order of the phoenix but again the 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 unnecessary paratext just freaked me out too much did it have that weird like hagrid's note with tear stains on it like that kind of weird shit i didn't i didn't see that I should I'm going to check that, though. I'm going to check book six that I have also in paperback because Mm. our Earthworld tech support. Hi,
1: how are you doing?
0: Brought that one while we were traveling. Yeah. So the the children's edition has all that paratext that I don't like. And also the worst part about it is that it's paginated differently. And like, that's just that's just ridiculous. Like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. However, this absurd, this completely and totally absurd Adult Edition has the exact same interior as the original Children's Edition Bloomsbury slash Raincoast Children's Mm -hmm. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. So I sucked it up and I bought a stupid Adult Edition. Also, it's hot pink, which is great. It's
1: actually pretty nice.
0: It's like, it's great. It's absurd. It's completely absurd. It's got a great big buck on it and and some swirly swirls, but it's hot pink, which I'm really into. Okay, let me tell you the story.
1: that wasn't the story? (laughs) That's not the story.
0: (laughs) So when I bought this from our local Edmonton independent bookstore, Audrey's Books, which is wonderful. And if you live in Edmonton, that's the only place you should buy your books unless you are a monster. Or buying
1: used books.
0: Or are buying used books because sometimes people can't afford new books. And by sometimes I mean like 95% of the time because Mm -hmm. new books are really expensive. Mm -hmm. So when I brought this one up to the cash uh to buy it it was it was a staff person who i didn't know before um and the staff person told me a story about how she had to special order her uk edition of all of the harry potter books when they first came out um because that meant that they were less realistic and had more fantasy than the ones that we read in canada
1: this sorry what <laughs>
0: she it became clear in that moment that this was a crazy person okay. who like doesn't understand okay. how books work and she works <laughs> in a bookstore <laughs> I love Audrey's books so much. It's such a great institution, and it's so important to buy books there. But it's important that you all know that there is at least one staff person who is currently working there who doesn't know how books work.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, God bless them. And obviously, if I'm going to buy a new book in Edmonton, I'm going to buy it at Audrey's Books, because support your local indie bookstores, Mm -hmm. always. Um, And fuck Amazon. It's going to be the first to burn. It's going to go up like kindling all them (laughs) books in them warehouses. But there should be a test when you hire people at bookstores. Sorry. You should ask them how they think fantasy works and also who Stan Rogers is. And that should be the entirety of the test. The end. Fun fact, the mansplainers will be the first into the flames. And speaking of men who talk too much, it's time for the boy who narrated our discussion of narrative perspective and Harry Potter's unreliability. Sorry, Harry. He <laughs> sure is shouty in this book.
0: Can I, can I make my favorite joke that yeah. I've already made on Twitter? Yeah. Everybody thinks that this is the longest Harry Potter book, but it's not actually any longer than the others. It's just that 60% of it is written in all caps, so it takes up more space.
1: <laughs> it's a really
0: good joke.
1: And it's so true. And I would like to add, I know for a lot of people, they have trouble with this book because Harry is so angry in it. Um, And I think that his anger is interesting and productive in a variety of ways, um, some of which we were about to talk about. I've also made the point out loud other times that I think that a lot of us experience a lot of inexplicable anger when we are 15 years old, and that it can be really hard to live with, Uh, something that feels that intense when you don't necessarily have a good reason for it. Mm -hmm. And part of I think the reason why such high intensity YA is so popular is because it gives you a sort of narrative outlet that justifies the degree of emotional intensity you're actually experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so Harry is absolutely justified in his anger not necessarily who he's directing it at but he is absolutely justified in being just super pissed off at this point but i also just think that there's something pleasurable when you were 15 about reading about somebody who's super angry because you were also super angry and you don't know why i would like to start by proposing the possibility of reading harry as suffering from ptsd in this book Mm -hmm. and so we have a few different sort of interesting behaviors that we're seeing from Harry in this we have um, an overwhelming anger that he can't explain or control Mm -hmm. right that he just feels this like intense sort of panic inducing rage um, in the face of things we see him acting irrationally when things happen to him you know confrontations with Dudley and the Dursleys Mm -hmm. like he's He's always had these confrontations, but now he can't control his anger. You know, he's lashing out at his friends. But then there's also this really interesting way in this book where Harry's sort of internal sense of self has started to become bifurcated. Mm -hmm. So we have a number of scenes where... Harry is debating with himself in his own head over what version of events he actually believes. Mm-hmm. For example, there's a scene where he's thinking about the fact that, or I think it's after Hermione and Ron have been. Um, turned into prefects or made prefects and he hasn't been and he's thinking like oh well they had us just as much a right to it as he did um they've gone through all of the same adventures that he has and then another part of his brain is like but they didn't actually you went through much more intensive you know you had all of these experiences that they didn't also have you're the one who had to face quarrel you're the one that saw cedric die you're the one that saw the rise of Voldemort. and so there's this this bifurcated mentality and later on in the book there's a moment where he thinks that the Weasleys have every right to be mad at him because he just attacked and almost killed their father. Mm -hmm. And then in his head, he's like, no, you didn't. That wasn't actually you. So there's this, this sort of replaying of events in his head and an uncertainty around the actual status of events. He'll tell one narrative version of it and then tell a different one. And that sort of division of reality and that sort of unsureness about what's real and what's not, does this really interesting job of tipping what has been a through line of narrative unreliability Mm -hmm. into a point of suggesting some kind of sort of mental instability on Mm -hmm. Harry's part. Thinking back to the earlier books, and Harry's constant worry, you know, in the first books, first book he has this anxiety that um they're mistaken that he's a wizard and that because you're inside his perspective it's really possible to believe that everything is wrong mm-hmm. and that somehow reality is not the way he's being told it is mm-hmm. and then in the second book we have him hearing the snake and nobody else can hear the snake and he's afraid he might be going mad and ron has that line about you know hearing voices in your head isn't a good thing even in the wizarding world. And now at this point, we have this issue where there's widespread media coverage of Harry as being mentally unstable so that his version of events is being undermined. But then at the same time, he's he's internalized that in a way that I think is consonant with having gone through this intense trauma Mm -hmm. and the fact that none of the adults in his life will talk to him about the trauma he went through. Like, Dumbledore's Mm -hmm. ignoring him. Like, nobody's sat him down to... To help him work through any of this, they just abandoned him for the summer and refused to communicate with him. Mm -hmm. So that's not going to help the situation. But there's just seems to be this way that the possibility of mental illness has been like right under the surface Mm -hmm. throughout the series. And it really seems to be coming to the forefront Mm -hmm. in this book, the possibility that Harry has lost control of himself, that he is literally not fully himself, that he might actually be possessed, Mm -hmm. which we know that the history of ideas of possession is actually tied to Mm -hmm. mental illness before we had language or understanding for that. Mm -hmm. And the way that these things are being tied together, Harry's PTSD, his sort of internal narrative monologue, and then the plot line with Voldemort's, Invading his head, I just find really, really fascinating in this book.
0: I think the one thing that I would add to that is the idea of gaslighting. I've been doing a lot of casual reading about gaslighting because it's not a recent phenomenon, but it, it has come into popular discourse and popular conversations relatively recently. And if you are not familiar with gaslighting, I would strongly recommend that you look it up. There are people who are going to explain it much better than I can, but. In some, it's when somebody or a group of people, knowingly or not, attempt to make you disbelieve your own mental capacity and your own memories and your own sense of what has happened to you. Mm-hmm. It's a form of abuse, and it's the type of abuse that is really hard to identify because there's no physical evidence of it. So one of the reasons why I think that this is relevant to bring up here is because the ministry of magic who has its hand in the back pocket of the Daily Prophet. God, they're
1: totally fucking gaslighting Harry. Yeah, they're
0: gaslighting Harry. Like immediately after Harry goes through this traumatic experience of watching a friend and a colleague and a comrade murdered by Voldemort and then almost being murdered himself and barely escaping. And then one of the people who he trusts the most turning out to be a psychopath, who is then going to murder him for Voldemort... After all of that, and at which point he's then dumped on the doorstep of the Dursleys without any explanation or support or anything, he comes back to the wizarding world to have the Daily Prophet making constant fun of him and causing everyone else to, as Hannah just said, disbelieve Harry's mental Fuck, what's the word I'm looking for? like
1: his mental stability,
0: yeah, his mental stability, yeah, so there's like there's like a widespread campaign of gaslighting, Harry happening in this book. Which coincides with Voldemort also entering into his brain and totally fucking with him. So, yeah. So it's no
1: wonder that when things happen, like he has this vision of Mr. Weasley getting attacked, that he can't actually believe the things that are happening in his own mind. He can't actually believe himself because he is being systematically taught to not believe himself because his entire society is gaslighting him just fucking bananas. And also I think emphasizes what was already for me, a huge amount of discomfort with how Dumbledore is acting Mm -hmm. in this book, which is that Dumbledore knows about things that are going on and is not telling Harry but that withholding of information ends up being complicit with Harry's gaslighting. Yeah. Because if Dumbledore shared the information with Harry sooner about what was actually mm-hmm. happening, it would help Harry to believe his own version of events mm-hmm. more than he does. As it is, he's totally on his own yeah. and doesn't have anybody, like,
0: taking his side. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, except for his friends who are they're his peers. They're not people who he can go to for advice and comfort, the, the advice and comfort of an adult, right? The parallel that I can't help that I immediately
1: draw in my head is all of the conversations that we've had recently about um, rape survivors and whether or not they make the decision to come forward with right. their experiences. And the sort of conversation we're starting to have publicly about how we can't assume that people didn't suffer something because they haven't talked about it because we know that they are so frequently not believed gaslighting is a a form of social and emotional and psychic abuse that is very frequently visited upon women who have been sexually abused um in the sense that they are told that they misremember the event or have misinterpreted the event that their version of events cannot possibly be accurate and that you know obviously happens to women when they Publicly talk about rape. Um, It's always, you know, while you're blowing things up, or Mm -hmm. you made a decision and regretted it retroactively, or you're just trying to get publicity and attention because this man is famous. Mm -hmm. Um, And that sort of, you know, obviously you see enough versions of people having that done to them, and you're going to recognize that yours is a culture in which you cannot speak of your experiences. But I think it's really interesting in the story to see that being played out for a young protagonist because the way that it's happening from Harry's perspective and that he has to learn to believe in his version of events despite what everybody else is saying to him i think it's actually an incredibly important story for young people to read Mm -hmm. because we know that a large percentage of young people male and female will experience abuse Mm -hmm. they'll often experience forms of abuse that people won't believe because they'll be from family members or friends of family members or teachers Mm -hmm. Um, And they'll be told that they misunderstood what happened or that they shouldn't talk about it or whatever. And so to have this protagonist who has experienced this violence and then is being told by everybody around him that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen the way you remembered. You're just trying to get attention. You can't be believed. You're just hysterical. And to see him struggling with that, but ultimately believing his own version of events... And standing true in that version of events and ultimately having that legitimized, I think, is actually a pretty mm-hmm. a pretty powerful narrative. It's never occurred to me when I was reading it.
0: It only just occurred to me right now.
1: God bless you, the powers of dialogue.
0: Yeah.
1: Talk about books, guys. It turns them into other things entirely. Okay, so the only other thing that we wanted to talk about in this discussion of narrative unreliability, just for the first half of the book, is... um. What happens at Hogwarts after Umbridge basically takes control? We've talked in the past about Harry's perspective on the differences between the four houses at Hogwarts being colored by his youth and by the, you know, his sort of perspective as somebody with particular allegiances and particular dislikes. And Marcel, you raised the question of whether... Well, why don't you? Why don't you ask the question you asked?
0: (laughs) So the question that I posed was about whether or not Umbridge does in fact favor the Slytherins to the degree that Harry seems to perceive her as doing. If we reduce all of the houses to their basic characteristics, Slytherins are ambitious. So it's entirely possible that the Slytherin students see this High Inquisitor, who they know to be working for the Ministry, as someone on whose good side they should get right away. Because if Slytherins breed Slytherins, then... Probably they know via their parents that it pays to know the right people and the right people are always people in power. Also, getting on her good side allows them to bully the other students with impunity. So it's possible, right? It's possible. But at the same time, the way that it is represented in the book is just so extreme and one sided that I think what I'm missing, what I find hard to believe, is that there aren't other students from other houses who are also getting in there on umbridge's team to start spying on other students and you know getting well oh, i just answered my own question oh. but i don't think we're there yet in the uh. book so i can't say anything uh. so never mind okay okay
1: well, then I'm just going to tell you my theory, which okay. we'll find out in the next episode, whether it's sure or not, which is I think that what we're actually seeing is not Umbridge favoring the Slytherins. It's her favoring the children of Fudge's political allies. Right. Um, so she is there obviously doing Fudge's political dirty work in terms of managing and controlling Hogwarts from the inside. Um Fudge's allies are very frequently affiliated with the Slytherins because he is interested in wealthy and powerful people who can help keep him in power and who, like him, are interested in keeping rumors of Voldemort's return off the streets. Mm -hmm. So it's very obvious why he wouldn't like Harry and why he wouldn't like the Weasleys. Mm -hmm. Um, And since half of the fucking Gryffindor Quidditch team is composed of Weasleys, it's not surprising that Umbridge turns against the Gryffindor Quidditch team, or the Gryffindors in general, since Gryffindors seem to be characterized by a sort of brash, idiotic bravery in the face <laughs> of political necessity, except for McGonagall, who seems right. to be... Th- McGonagall and Hermione both have a yeah. fairly good sense of the fact that sometimes when politics happen, you have to be a little more thoughtful about your actions. I
0: wonder, I wonder if McGonagall, like Hermione, was almost sorted into Ravenclaw but she's like that's the only thing that makes sense right
1: yeah she's a very she's a brave and clawy gryffindor Mm -hmm. but you know when push comes to shove McGonagall's at the front of the battle lines but i think that probably what's actually happening on the ground is umbridge sort of finding and favoring the children of fudge's political allies regardless of what house they are in it just wouldn't surprise me that an unusually high number of them are in slytherin
0: i like this theory and i look forward to testing it with the second half of the book
1: play your cards so close to your chest.
0: (laughs) Him, him! You know what will help this fire burn faster? Some chemical accelerants! I bet we could learn how to whip some up in potions class, our segment on pedagogy at Hogwarts. While Hannah is chewing a chip, uh, in our brief mention of McGonagall in the last segment, I suddenly remembered the moment in the book when Harry has been sent to her office by Umbridge for telling lies or whatever.
1: And McGonagall's like, "Learn to tell lies better,
0: you and, idiot." Yeah, and McGonagall's like, "Learn to tell lies better, you idiot. Also have a biscuit." I love I love nothing more than the scene when McGonagall shouts at Harry, "Have a biscuit, Potter." It filled me with Glee. I identify so
1: strongly with McGonagall. Mm-hmm. I very frequently identify most strongly with sassy spinster characters in books or TV shows. Like if anybody's seen Sense8, the character I identified with most strongly is Nomi's awesome Jewish professor mom, who is, appears to be single and to live alone in a like sweet San Francisco house made entirely out of glass. Just wears giant glasses and like cooks food for her awesome Black lesbian adopted daughter and just, like, houses criminals and is the best. And I feel very similar about McGonagall. The kinds of women who people look at and underestimate and are secretly, like, radical and awesome. Mm -hmm. I love those women. Okay. I would like to talk about The Sorting Hats' new song. I mean, people have talked about this before. This is The Sorting Hats' absolutely bananas song in which it gives you the history of the four houses and tells you more than it has told you before about where they come from, but also for the purposes of this segment about their pedagogical approaches. So I'm going to begin by reading just a segment of the song to you. Not singing it because there's no musical notation. So I can't. Here is what you get. Said Slytherin will teach just those whose ancestry is purest. Said Ravenclaw will teach those whose intelligence is surest. Said Gryffindor will teach all those with brave deeds to their name. Said Hufflepuff, I'll teach the lot and treat them just the same. So two important notes about this. One, it is incredibly insulting to Hufflepuffs because it just says that they are people who don't have pure blood, who are not smart and are not brave. They're other. Like in other songs, the Hufflepuffs are kind, they're loyal, they're hardworking, they're conscientious. In this song, they are just not any of those other three qualities. (laughs) But that said, when you apply any pressure at all to this song, what is revealed is the fact that Ravenclaw, Gryffindor, and Slytherin are, have, in fact, much more in common with each other than they do with Hufflepuff. Usually Slytherin is treated as the odd house out, right? The sort of villain house of the piece. But what the song seems to imply to me here is that, in fact, Hufflepuff is the only house based on sound pedagogical principles, which is that Every child deserves a good education, whether they are brave or racially pure or naturally talented at school. They all deserve a quality education and to be treated like they matter. And all three other houses are based in exclusivity and divisiveness. And if that is the philosophy upon which the school is based, then there's no fucking wonder that it's breeding dark wizards. Because that's bullshit. (laughs) And that means that the only characters who are actually, like, at all sort of being taught that everybody is valuable are Hufflepuffs. I want to read a whole retelling of the Harry Potter Story from the perspective of a Hufflepuff. Hannah Abbott, ideally. Her and her pigtails. My namesake. Doesn't that mean I was named after her? Weren't you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's how names work. (laughs) That's also how time works.
0: I mean, she's older than you, based on the chronology of the books. I don't think so. Mm Mm-hmm. No. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, she's the same age as Harry, right? Yeah. They're younger than us.
0: No, they're older than us. No, they're younger than us. No. (laughs) No, they're only younger than us if we believe that they were 11 when the books came out, which they weren't. The books take place in the 90s. Fuck, they're older than us.
1: Yeah. I guess I was named after Hannah Abbott. Yeah.
0: You win this round. I would also like to just add one more point to my tally of times that I read better than Hannah.
1: I want you all to know that later on tonight, I'm going to set Marcel on fire.
0: (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, so we just looked at the time and realized that we've been talking for an hour. um, And that's nonsense. A lot of it's been
1: bullshit.
0: Yeah, a lot of it's been bullshit. And I'm going to cut most of it out. But while we're in potions class, I do think it's worth discussing the fact that this is the first book where we encounter Harry as a teacher. Harry successfully teaches... All of these students, all of these skills that he himself has had to develop, often under extreme duress, and he does a really good job. We get ample evidence of that. People saying, like Cho Chang, for example, saying she's never been able to stun anything before. Neville, who is just the goddamn hero of our hearts every single time, who like for the first time ever, learns how to do magic because he's in an environment where he actually is a teacher who is encouraging and kind and who pairs him with other people in the class who are also going to be encouraging and kind rather than just ridiculing him in front of everybody. Harry is a great teacher. I'm going to want to come back to this throughout the remaining books because Harry's interest in becoming an aura really bothers me considering what a great defense against the dark arts teacher he is. It really disturbs me that the job that he decides he wants to go for in the wizarding world is the equivalent to being a police officer. That is my sound effect for police
1: officers. Sorry.
0: Yes, we know that they're not all bad, not all cops, et cetera, et cetera. Hashtag no tall cops. No tall cops is what That's we think. That. But Harry has the capacity to actually like change people's lives for the better he does this for a number of his peers and yet the job that he wants is to like go around hunting bad wizards and as we've discussed previously and will continue to discuss the concept of what makes a bad wizard is real fucked up and up for debate
1: well said So the last thing that I want to talk that we want to talk about in this segment um, is Umbridge, Mm because we need to talk about Umbridge's pedagogy. And the thing that I'm particularly interested in is the way that Umbridge, despite all of her evil and villainy and sinisterness, her actual behavior in the classroom is incredibly innocuous right? Mm -hmm. She is not villainous in the classroom. As high inquisitor she is, Mm -hmm. as physical violator of Harry she is, which I do want to touch upon as well. But in terms of her actual sort of pedagogy, what she is instead is this interesting representative of a sort of modern state-run education based on standardized testing and curricula that are enforced at the federal level. The sort of face of disciplinary modernity and its effect on education in our schools, you know, over classrooms that are too big. And so that require students to just sit and read the textbooks because teachers are underqualified and don't know how to handle students. That many students or can't adopt actual meaningful, valuable pedagogical models to classrooms that are oversized. Like all of the things that she does in terms of making the students sit quietly and read the textbook um, and insisting on the absolute authority of state-sponsored pedagogical experts over students' actual personal experiences or what students have to say about how they learn best. Like, none of that is evil in the same way as her other behavior. It's just a, like, really straightforward, pretty cutting representation of Like contemporary grade school education, Mm -hmm. and what it looks like for anybody who can't afford specialized education is that it probably looks like you sitting in a classroom reading a textbook while somebody doesn't give a fuck.
0: I feel really complicated about Umbridge as a representation of state involved education as well, because right now in Ontario, where neither of us live but from which we both hail, there has been. In the last few months, a shit show going on because the Ontario government has decided that the sex education that is currently happening in public schools is insufficient, which I would say is accurate. (laughs) No
1: fucking duh.
0: (laughs) And so they've they've um, they've made some pretty radical changes to it that include things like teaching children that. Gender isn't innate that gender is gender is a thing even that like there's a difference between sex and gender, like that even of itself. if we just start from that basic principle, the fact that students are learning that is a really big deal. They're also learning that there's more sexualities than just heterosexuality what I know Stop I it. know. So as a result of this, people are losing their minds and are saying things like children are being told that they can choose their gender, which I would be in favor of. But that's actually not what is being taught. But if that was, that would be okay too. And so I think that what's happening in Ontario right now is a kind of example where I think it's really important and valid for the state to step in and be like, what you're teaching children is currently wrong. And we've seen long term damage to this kind of educational model. So, we're going to change it and we're going to make it better based on research. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point because some of the forms of pedagogy at Hogwarts are terrible. Yeah, they're terrible. Um,
1: and there are some ways in which you're like, this reminds me of something that I read recently. There was a debate about the sort of over standardization of academic job applications, that there's such a fucking bureaucratic rigmarole these days in terms of how you apply for academic jobs. Um, and then another person sort of responding saying that. The deep paperwork in which academia has become buried is in fact a way of making it impossible for academia to function the way that it used to, which was white guys from Ivy League universities hired other white guys from Ivy League universities and... Sometimes bureaucracy has a function mm-hmm. when that function is to be a corrective towards normative forms of power and oppression. And I can absolutely see a different version of this in which Umbridge comes in and is like, so there's an issue with your potions classes. Mm-hmm uh because they seem to involve a lot of emotional abuse of your students so we're also i've noticed that you're not teaching sex education anywhere Mm -hmm. so as the high inquisitor i'm just gonna have to insist that there's some sex education here um also i'm gonna like review the pedagogical models of all of the teachers and notice that like we love hagrid but actually he's incredibly unqualified to be a teacher and is endangering the life of students Mm -hmm. so like there is another version of this in which umbridge suddenly becomes the hero so I was having a conversation with a lady friend of mine today about what is and is not legal in the Canadian education system. And she told me she's about to teach a ethics and education course at the university and as a result has been doing a lot of research on the subject and has recently found out that it is in fact legal in Canada to hit students. Children in your classroom... As a teacher, you can hit them. It's not illegal. It might be against the school or the education system's policies. So it might be a fireable offense, but it's not a criminal offense. Wow. Yeah. Did it just blow your fucking mind? Holy shit. Yeah. Like some of the the laws make sense. It's things like if you physically restrain a violent student or split up two students who are fighting with each other or, you know, a student is developmentally delayed in some way and is, is at risk of harming themselves and you need to restrain them in some way. But it's also okay to slap a student to get their attention or to discourage them from delinquent behavior that they have demonstrated on a repeated basis. Um, that is acceptable. The only form of physical violence that is not allowed is hitting the student over the head because that risks brain damage. And... You can't cause any lasting damage. So like if you bruise them or break skin or anything like that, like that's against the law. One of the stipulations within the law is that it can't be beyond what the student can bear.
0: You're supposed to know that until you test it out.
1: Yeah, I guess you just find out. Um, but that, when I was going back and sort of making notes for this episode, I was looking back at these scenes in which Umbridge is torturing Harry in this horrifying way, right? She's having him write with this quill where the words that he's writing are, in fact, carved into his own skin. Mm-hmm. But A, it doesn't cause, at least initially, doesn't cause lasting damage because mm-hmm. it heals itself. And B, because of his... Deliberate, insistent stoicism, it does not appear to be beyond what he can bear. So somehow in our fucked up legal system in which children don't actually have personhood in the context of education, uh, maybe what Umbridge is doing to him is legal. Maybe Umbridge is in fact acting entirely within the law. Mm-hmm. And it's just the law itself, which is incredibly broken and fucked up. I'd always assumed that what she was doing was illegal. And if he told anybody, it would be like that. This was like it shocked me when I read this first. Because I was like, if he told anybody, she would go to jail right away. But after this
0: conversation today, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Also, as we know, the wizarding penal system is like super bonkers, right? So like, would she go to Azkaban? If let's say it was illegal, would she go to Azkaban for... Making students carve words into their own hands with her carving quill? Probably not. I I don't know. Is there another, is there like a, a minimum security wizard prison anywhere? I don't think we have any evidence for one. I mean, maybe there's one in one of those paratextual books. Tell us. Yeah, tell us, listeners. We'll get to them eventually, but like you have already witnessed the rate at which we're reading these books and it's, <laughs> it's slow. Gonna... <laughs> it's going to take so long. <laughs> Okay, so one thing that I want to say about Umbridge before we move on is that we both love this character, like, unapologetically. Like, we adore this character. And I feel like that's important to just put out there that she is monstrous and terrible, but so just, like, lusciously evil in the way that she's written.
1: My favorite thing about her is her monstrous simpering femininity. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that she performs this over-the-top femininity Mm -hmm. that is so obviously at odds with her power and her violence unnerves the shit out of everybody who sees her Mm -hmm. her kittens and her hair bows and her fluffy pink cardigans Mm -hmm. and the malevolence in her eyes oh i love it i'm in total agreement
0: one of the downsides though to having a female villain is that the way characters express their dislike and hatred of her very easily slip into sexism. And that is not something that this book escapes. It happens all the time. There's a lot of reference to that Umbridge woman at the beginning of the book that I feel really uncomfortable with, because Umbridge is just as qualified to be a professor as all of the other bananas, useless professors that we've encountered in the series so far. (laughs) Yeah, Hannah just pointed out one moment when Ron smirks and says, "Nice cardigan." Mega burn, Ron. <laughs> good, good job, Ron. Good job. This is one of the difficult things about women being disempowered throughout history: is that the way that we know instinctively how to disparage women in power is inevitably sexist and disempowering. Yeah. Do you think that there's something? Thatcher-esque about Umbridge.
1: I think this is a reference to Britain's very intimate experience of a sort of very feminine, very polite, Mm -hmm. very evil woman politician.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that until you just raised it. But yeah, absolutely. Um, One of our friends, uh, Stephen Shear, has, I think, posed to us the theory that Harry Potter is actually about Thatcherite England. And I think Umbridge is is a great model to look at, to look at Thatcher. Mm. No, the other way around. I'm not sure what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, I think if we start thinking about Umbridge as a sort of Thatcher figure, that that sort of might open that up for us, Mm -hmm. Um, which is maybe something that we will talk about in 30 seconds. Cool. At first, I was worried the flames would engulf the trees. But then I remembered that the trees can protect themselves. At least they can in the Forbidden Forest. Our segment on class and race and bodies and power and fire. You want to start us off?
0: Okay, I really want to talk about the penal system. I always want to talk about the wizarding penal system because it is something that I just find so... It's so disturbing in its characterization, and yet it's so disturbing in its accurate representation of how the penal system works in the real world as well right so we know that harry's trial is a show trial we know that they changed the time of and location of the trial deliberately with no notice whatsoever to fuck with harry and to keep dumbledore from coming
1: i just want to add that that is literally kafka-esque which is amazing yeah
0: Yeah. We also know that Harry has gone to that trial to explain himself and the way that they pose their questions is designed specifically so that it makes Harry look untrustworthy, unbelievable, attention seeking, etc. And the one piece of advice that he's given before he goes is not to lose his temper, right? Just to like Mm -hmm. stay calm. But how, when you're reading it, you're like, you can't, you can't stay calm when you can tell that the system is set up specifically to undermine his own selfhood and his own autonomy and etc
1: in fact the insistence that you have to stay calm in the face of that kind of abuse is a just another way of disempowering you
0: yeah. right
1: just like the discourse of like well you can object to the way that you're systemically impressed but please do it in a civil fashion mm-hmm. like that's just another way of disempowering the disempowered
0: yeah
1: fuck discourses of civility setting this apartment on fire Set this whole courtroom on
0: fire and so on. So Harry's at what's supposed to be a hearing and it's a show trial. It's a great big show trial. And the reason that it's being put on is because Fudge does not want to believe that Voldemort is back. It's not because there's no evidence that Voldemort is back. There's an eye fucking witness. He's sitting there in the witness box. But Fudge is just like, he can't be back. I can't deal with it. I can't deal with being the Minister of Magic when Voldemort returns. Like, are you kidding me? I don't like reality. Stop it. I know that this is a completely different parallel and it's not super useful, but I just want to point out that it is so much like the way that governments deal with climate change. They're <laughs> yeah. like, it can't pass. I, like, I can't- what are we going to do? It's too hard. Stop it. People need jobs. <laughs> it's
1: like, Okay, cool. Great. But it's actually a really good parallel. It's like this is a game changer and it's going to fundamentally destabilize the way that the world works. And I have power, Mm -hmm. so I don't want to destabilize things. So no. Yeah.
0: Sounds a lot like our uh, current prime minister. I would love for someone to do an eco-critical reading of the entire Harry Potter series using Voldemort as a signifier for climate change. That is what I want.
1: Okay. Internet. Do it now. Do it. There's your dissertation. Go. Okay. So we are, since we've already spent a lot of time on some other things, we're going to sort of um, gloss on some of these issues. But um, I have two short additional rants that I want to <laughs> offer. One is very, very brief. And it is um, only a sort of interesting revelation that I had, um, which we've talked a lot about pure blood wizardry and racism. But there's a moment in this book when um, the Slytherins are at... The uh, Gryffindor Quidditch practice, and they are taunting the Gryffindor players. And Pansy Parkinson is yelling at Angelina Johnson, and she yells at her that her hair is ridiculous and looks, I believe, looks like worms, is what she says, which is a reference to the fact that Angelina Johnson wears her hair in braids, which is an explicitly racialized attack. And that, I'm not sure if we've seen similarly explicitly racialized attacks happen, But the way that the Gryffindors brush it off without response um, and the way that the other Slytherins all rejoice at it suggests to me that it's certainly not the first time that language like this has been used. And it suddenly made me sort of go back through all the Slytherin characters and be like, wow, I don't think that we've seen a person of color who's a Slytherin in this book in any of these books in the movies Um, and then add to that the moment or the scene where we're seen from Sirius black what the black family tree looks like and the revelation that the blacks are in fact related to every other pureblood wizard family that we've encountered in the series like basically everybody who isn't harry or hermione though maybe harry is actually related to the blacks but uh that is a sort of interesting revelation that like the Wizarding World is based on this pure breeding logic, this sort of inbreeding logic, where a very select group of white people marry each other constantly, and everybody's everybody else's second cousin. And Arthur Weasley and Molly Weasley are cousins, and we'll get into that later. Uh, that revelation aligned with the scene where Pansy Parkinson is attacking Angelina Johnson suddenly made me just go like, "Oh yeah, Slytherins are white." Like, I know, I'm sure that you can find evidence that there is, like, one or two non-white Slytherins, just like you could find one person with a Jewish surname in the entire book series. That does not disprove my thesis. Mm -hmm. My thesis being that the form of violence that the Slytherins um, embody is not subtextually or implicitly a form of racial violence, but is actually textually and explicitly a form of racial violence. Mm Mm-hmm. That's my thesis, and oh wait a minute! Do, do 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 do. Oh, I think it's time
0: for Chew Watch. So we finally met a Jew. We found him. We found a Jew.
1: This resolved all, all of our issues with the text. Yeah,
0: we played the game Find the Jew, and then we found the Jew. His name is Anthony Goldstein. So Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> so like, we know that he's Jewish because his last name is Goldstein. Mm-hmm. He's in Ravenclaw. <sighs> Which yeah. is, which makes sense because because we Semites we are an intellectual people yeah, we people like to study people of the book. Uh-huh. Um, oh, hey. that's it.
1: Yeah. Oh, is that a hundred percent of everything we know about this character?
0: Yeah. Let me let me consult my notes. I'm digging deep into this book for things that we can determine to be true about Anthony Goldstein based on the like seven, seven lines that we have about him in the entire book. He gives Hermione the here, here that heartens her in order to carry on when she talks about how uh, nobody could call what Umbridge is teaching them defense against the dark arts. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that he believes in education. Yep. Slow clap for Anthony Goldstein. Good job. Yeah. Nope. That's
1: uh Oh, is that 100%? That's
0: that is that is now until we get to the to the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. That is all we have.
1: Um now of course we we recently had the revelation from Rowling that uh, another important character who's going to show up in the new um Harry Potter world movie, the movie of uh, Fantastic Beasts somewhere to find them. Um there's also going to be a character who's secret Jewish in that. And uh, that's fine. What's her name? Goldstein, also. Yeah. Yeah. Also Goldstein. She's like a... She's Yeah, Anthony Goldstein is descended from the one other Jewish character. Um, and her tweet was something like, what people you re- usually don't realize. And it's like, we can't fucking realize anything about the books you don't tell us, Rowling. that's not reality. No. We have no access to this information. Whew. Anyway... Uh, So that's really akin to her sort of her Dumbledore revelation. And so I just want to add an addendum that there is no like you are as free to interpret characters within the text as Jewish, as Muslim, as pagan, as atheists, um, as you are to read characters as queer. Like you as a reader can find space for the identities that interest and excite you within the text as you choose. I think that's really important. I think it's important to recognize that Jewish people are not always coded as Semitic invisible ways. They don't always have the last name Goldstein, surprisingly.
0: Uh, It's Um, my last name. Yeah,
1: it is Marcel Cosman, parenthesis, Goldstein, closed parenthesis. Important to know. It's the secret last name of every Jewish person. Um, But uh, just based on the fact that Rowling has said has repeatedly said, like, oh, yeah, no, there's a Jewish guy. It's this guy. Oh, I found another Jewish person. It's this guy's grandmother. Like, if that's what we're basing it on, if we've got
0: one Jew to go off
1: of, we're not super impressed.
0: Yeah. Before we move on, I just want to add that um, we actually know more about goblins in this book than we do about Anthony Goldstein. Um, so on my kick of goblins being the Jews of this series, I would just like to add that what we learn about goblins in this, in this book so far from Bill Weasley, who, as you know, is the Weasley of my heart, that they would be willing to be on side with the good wizards if they could just have some freedoms. So that, that tells us that they're classed as a kind of dark creature, much in the same way that. Well, we'll talk about the centers in the next book. But, you know, similarly, they're a controlled creature. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have personhood, which is interesting. <laughs> Historically relevant. Um, and there's also uh, a reference. Uh, Luna Luna provides us with this information. Um, a reference to a cartoon. It's in the Quibbler, which Luna is reading. And Harry sees it. It's a political cartoon of Cornelius Fudge with one of his hands clenched around a bag of gold and the other hand throttling a goblin. And the cartoon was captioned, how far will Fudge go to gang Gringotts? So we still have the association of goblins running the banks, of goblins being less than people. Like all of these things are just even though there are Jews in the book. There's Jew in the book. <laughs> that goblins remain the Semites yeah. of this series. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one
1: final rant for um, the Forbidden Forest. Um, and that is just some thoughts that I had in relation to the, um, the revelation in the first half of this book. That the reason why Fudge has planted umbrage at Hogwarts and had her take over as the defense against the dark arts teacher um is that he is afraid of um the young people of the wizarding world radicalizing and turning against him right he's afraid essentially he's afraid that Dumbledore is using Hogwarts to build an army against uh Fudge himself um and so Fudge's Fundamental fear of young people and the ways in which they might destabilize his control causes him to reorganize their educational system in a way that dispossesses them and prevents them from radicalizing. And what I want to say about that is that that is a 100% accurate representation of the way that education works, that all of your education systems, young people, young people of America, your education systems are working to de-radicalize you. <laughs> University tuition and the crippling student debt that results from it is... A deliberate strategy to depoliticize and de-radicalize young people mm-hmm. so that they cannot overthrow systems that dispossess them so that they are constantly tied up in the capitalist system that requires them to constantly go in search of high paying jobs through which they can pay off their debt which they can only get by getting university educations that put them into debt in the first place that is a system that is dispossessing you because the government does not want you to be politically radical. It wants you to consent to the status quo because that is how it maintains power. The universities in Canada that have been built since the 60s actually have architectural features that have been designed to make it impossible for students to physically gather in space together because just like Umbridge, your universities did not want you to organize, they did not want you to gather in groups because they know that when young people gather in groups and talk to each other, they overthrow systems and the powers that be do not like you to overthrow systems, they like you to consent to systems. So, what I'm saying is, please also start your own Dumbledore's armies. Please also take your education in your own hands. Please subvert every fucking thing you can find. Please burn down every freestanding building that you encounter.
0: I think this whole righteous fire theme is getting a bit dark, so why don't we focus for a while on those who will do the burning, rather than those who will be burned. That's right, it's time for Granger Danger.
1: I am now conditioned to hear, like, a crash of lightning after you say the words out loud. Like, <laughs> even though it's not there, I can hear it already in my soul. All right so so the we're gonna talk about a couple of things in this segment. The primary thing I think we want to discuss is um Hermione and her allegiance with Mrs. Weasley and mm-hmm. the larger subject of um what Marcel beautifully put I just had this like brain blip where I was like what Hermione no that's not her name and then I was like Cosman no that's not what Goldstein. I call you Goldstein <laughs> what Goldstein over here. Uh, <laughs> has beautifully worded as the gendered labor of the resistance
0: the thing that caught my attention the most when i was reading this and looking at the way that the order of the phoenix was organized and the types of work that mrs weasley does versus the types of work that the male and more masculine characters perform like molly weasley does a lot of the cooking and the preparing and the feeding and the and the caretaking the emotional labor she does all of the emotional labor tonks who we encounter and who is wonderful and awesome and i don't want to say anything bad about tonks but the thing i want to point out is that tonks makes a point of saying that she's never been good at the domestic stuff Mm -hmm. so she's immediately coded as a masculine character in that binary of who does the emotional labor and who does the um real work real as in scare quotes the real work of the resistance um and similarly we have sirius who we know to be locked in that house because he can't go out he can't therefore do anything quote-unquote useful and so Sirius ends up being required to do all of the types of labor that we just expect Molly Weasley to do and that she does and she does it without being a fucking bitch about it like Ah, Sirius Black
1: oh my god
0: in the first half of this book is just like could you please get your shit together and just like get the fucking doxies out of the curtains because that's what you need to do. You need to make this place habitable for the other people who work here. Get it together. Get it together. Serious. Stop being such a crybaby about the fact that you can't go shoot wizards with your wizard wand cock and instead put your wand cock to work, cleaning the curtains and, scr- and scrubbing the floors.
1: I mean, cocks literally can't clean anything. They only make
0: things stickier, so... Oh, God. I'm always at my gayest when we talk about, like, what cocks do. I'm just like, ew! <laughs> ew! <laughs> cocks! <laughs> Gross! Uh-huh. Anyway, yeah. I <laughs> know. I know. I know. So we were talking about this when we were getting ready for the episode, and then Hannah pointed out the way in which Hermione is aligned with Mrs. Weasley and and does all of the emotional work of caring for Harry. Yeah. So there's the scene where Harry has
1: first arrived at the borough and he's feeling very, very upset because he was emotionally neglected. And Hermione immediately identifies how Harry's going to have been feeling, starts apologizing even before Harry can get upset, tells him, you know, I'm, I'm sure you must be super angry with us about the fact that we couldn't communicate with you. And, you know, here are the reasons why we had to do it. She anticipates his emotional needs. She starts caring for him Uh, right away but there's this undercurrent in Hermione's um, relationship to Harry at the beginning of the book that is explicitly fearful right Mm -hmm. there's a scene where Hermione where Harry goes to sort of blow up at something Hermione has said and she sort of cuts him off and it explicitly says that she gives him a fearful look Um, and then 10 pages later we have a parallel scene where Mrs. Weasley is you know doing her emotional labor in her household which she constantly does um, and then she says something about Percy, um, and then realizes that we're not supposed to be mentioning Percy in this household. And then she gives Arthur Weasley a fearful look, and it's like exactly the same wording. And it's this way that we have these strong female characters, um, but that when they are cast in this register of doing emotional labor, there's an undercurrent of fear to it constantly that when you are doing emotional labor, you must constantly be attuned to the emotions of everybody around you. And that means when you are around people who are reacting violently or angrily, Mm -hmm. that you must internalize that affect. I think that really comes to the fore in the scene where we see Mrs. Weasley breaking down in the face of the Bogart, right? Mm -hmm. That she has single-handedly internalized the reality of the emotional toll of what they are doing Mm -hmm. and where everybody else gets the sort of brush it off and focus on the task at hand she's bearing the emotional brunt of it um and really suffering from it and it really comes out there in a powerful way there's a great piece that um, i think jess zimmerman do i have the name right recently wrote about emotional labor for the toast called where's my cut on unpaid emotional labor where she talks about the huge amount of unpaid emotional labor that women are responsible for and how because we don't value that as actual labor we end up having this sort of really really gendered model of labor with some forms of labor count and some don't and that Mm -hmm. is so obvious in this book because mrs weasley is killing herself with her emotional labor she's not the hero
0: no and she's also she's also set up in so many ways as being the overbearing and this word is actually used in the book molly coddling woman Right. One of our friends, Caitlin, once told me about the way that grammar and discourse is gendered and how you, especially in the 1950s, you saw this trend of the hen pecking wife and the calm husband who internalizes all of it. And he's always the rational one. And he, in the end, gets to say the one thing that makes the decision. Right. So you have the hen pecking wife who's like, we can't do this. We can't do that. We have to do this. We have to do that. You have to do this. You have to be like this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Constantly talking to the silent husband, who then, when he does open his mouth to speak, says the authoritative thing, and then the and then the deal is done. so immense amounts of love for Arthur Weasley. he's not a he's not a, a patriarch in the patriarchal sense of the patriarchy. but he is a patriarch in the fact that, like he is framed as the reasonable one in most cases. and Molly is framed as the overbearing emotional irrational one and it's because it's her fucking job to do all of the emotional work for everybody not just for her children not just for her for her foster son harry but for the entire order of the phoenix
1: yeah it's entirely uh easy to stay calm and logical when you can literally outsource your emotion to somebody else and they can do all of that for you wouldn't that be nice though have somebody else who can do your feels for you
0: god oh emotions are exhausting Mm -hmm. all right do you want to talk about house elves for a bit i do i do want to talk about house elves but before we talk about house elves i want to also point out that both molly and hermione have the exact same distrust of Mm -hmm. Sirius black Mm -hmm. who um we haven't finished the book yet so there are no spoilers yet but who gives like the worst advice in this book he gave the worst advice in the last book too did he not
1: yeah i mean this is the sort of the first time that we actually get to see sirius um like in person attempting to be a parental figure to harry he's only been like you know he was a villain in book three and in book four he was that sort of aspirational parental figure like everything would be better and i've seen fan fiction stuff that's like oh imagine what harry's life would have been like if sirius had actually been able to be his adopted father and i think from reading this book it's like it would have been probably not great. I mean, probably better than with the Dursleys because everything would be better, but it would be like substantially better if he could just spend his whole summer at the borough because Sirius does not know how to be a parent. Sirius is for clear reasons, emotionally stunted, caught in the age of his intense trauma when his Mm -hmm. best friends were murdered and he was um, imprisoned in a a torture chamber, um, but has not ever grown beyond that and cannot get past the idea that harry is james mm-hmm. um and therefore cannot treat harry like a child and cannot himself behave like a responsible adult who can set limits um instead he treats the two of them like they are peers and adventurers together and that is incredibly dangerous behavior when you are parenting a 15 year old
0: totally. absolutely yeah
1: and mrs weasley and hermione are 100 percent right about him I talked in the last episode a little bit about the ways in which Hermione is not a particularly good ally, Mm -hmm. right? That she has this politics where she is interested in liberating the house elves. Um, That is something that is very important to her. But that the way that she is going about it, whether or not that is a legitimate political goal, which I'm going to say we can't actually tell based on the textual evidence we have. Um, whether or not it's a legitimate political goal, she is not going about it in a positive way. She's not being a good ally. She is not creating space for the community that she wants to partner with to actually voice their own needs and desires. She's not stepping back to let the disenfranchised speak. She is violently enforcing her beliefs and her politics on another group. And that takes the form in this book of um, her knitting clothes for the house elves at Hogwarts that she leaves disguised beneath piles of rubbish in the Gryffindor common room in the hopes that house elves will accidentally pick them up and be forced into freedom. And that is not how you liberate somebody. That's your Hermione you're doing it wrong. And Dobby recognizes that she's doing it wrong. Dobby, someone who is invested in freedom, who's the closest thing she has to an ally looks at the way she's doing it. And he's like, you're fucking doing it wrong. And just like fixes it. He just takes all of those clothes and keeps them for himself and winky. But Marcel, you made a really good point about how hypocritical her behavior is in the light of her very uppity relationship to uh, her fellow Gryffindors. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I didn't write down the page number. I'm really mad at myself for that because I can't find it. But, oh, yes, I found it. And I found it because I immediately picked out uh, one of my least favorite phrases that male-identified people can ever say to female-identified people, um, which is, calm down. So what's happening is... um, I know Hannah is, Hannah is currently expelling fire from her ears right now. She's so angry. She doesn't even know what the context is yet, but she knows it's bad because it included the words, calm down. She just exploded. So, okay. So, uh, at the, so at the beginning of, uh, the school year, Fred and George are recruiting Gryffindors to be testers for their products. And Hermione steps in and says, you, you can't do that. Um, and the thing that I caught was when I underlined and then put a sad face. Uh, <laughs> with, um, yeah. Calm down, Hermione. They're fine. Said Lee reassuringly. Like, no, no oh. one has ever said calm oh. down reassuringly. That's not a it's not a phrase that you can say reassuringly. That's impossible. I'm sure
1: that you thought you were being reassuring. <laughs> that is part of why you're a douchebag.
0: Yeah. Nice try, Lee. No, no. So Hermione steps in and is like, you can't do that to first years. They don't know what they're getting into. Um, You don't know what the ramifications will be of testing these products on them. Absolutely not. This is not okay. She gets into a confrontation with Fred and George and Lee. Like they're, they're being misogynist dicks and Uh she's in the right because you can't test products on 11 year olds. -olds. (laughs) They're 11. They're not, you can't, no, that's, that's bad and wrong. And then the next page, Hermione pulls out two misshapen hats and then covers them with some, and I quote, screwed up bits of parchment and a broken quill and stood back to admire the effect. So immediately after being like, Fred and George, what you guys are doing is wrong and unethical. She then hides elf hats so that she can impose freedom on house elves who have repeatedly told her in, in one way or another that they don't want it. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm uncomfortable and angry about that. Legit.
1: Okay. The final thing I want to say for Granger Danger is that there is what I find to be a very exciting um, and productive through line. We've been pretty, kind of a little bit, I don't know. Not necessarily hard on Hermione, but mostly pointing out the ways in which she is either fucking up or being poorly treated in this book. But there's a way in which she's playing an incredibly important role in this book um, and doing some very exciting work. And that is that Hermione so far in this book is being portrayed very clearly as... Um, a competent and critical close reader. Um, And so that happens for the first time when she is the only one who successfully pays attention to um, Umbridge's entire opening speech, which is very long and very boring. Um, And it says, you know, Harry found his attentiveness ebbing as though his brain was slipping in and out of tune. The quiet that always filled the hall when Dumbledore was speaking was breaking up as students put their heads together. So nobody is paying attention, right? None of the students are successfully listening to what Umbridge is saying, except for Hermione. Um, So it says later on, the teachers, however, were still listening very attentively and Hermione seemed to be drinking in every word Umbridge spoke. And then later on, She says to Ron and Harry that she found it illuminating. And Ron's like kind of put off by that. He's like, uh, it was obviously dumb. That was super boring. Um, And then Hermione says, it was, I said, illuminating, not enjoyable. It explains a lot. So what that... Clarifies for us right up front is that Hermione has picked up the skill of listening and reading closely. That Hermione knows that sometimes what seems to be the most boring is actually the most important, which reminds me of nothing so much as John Oliver's excellent piece on uh, net neutrality, where he explicitly says that when the government wants you to not care about something important, they couch it in the most boring possible discourse because they know that nothing depoliticizes people so quickly as boring language um and that in fact listening through boredom can be an incredibly important skill we get a few pages later hermione saying scathingly to ron um that she listens where he doesn't mm-hmm. um, this is in the context of uh remembering what dumbledore said at the last last year's end of term feast neither her harry nor ron remember it and like harry fair enough yeah yeah harry had just been traumatized <laughs> but ron says like how do you remember stuff like that and hermione says i listen um and then later on when harry has been pulled into uh mcgonagall's office mcgonagall says didn't you listen to dolores umbridge's speech at the start of term feast potter yeah said harry yeah she said progress will be prohibited or well it meant that that the Ministry of Magic is trying to interfere at Hogwarts? Professor McGonagall eyed him closely for a moment, then sniffed, walked around her desk, and held open the door for him. Well, I'm glad you listened to Hermione Granger at any rate. Which is just this remarkable, like, she is the close reader and the close listener of the text. Mm -hmm. And as we get further and further into the adult world and the world of politics, which is where the book is headed... It becomes increasingly important to be a critical reader and to learn how to sort of listen through dense, forbidding, uninteresting texts and to pay attention to to like remember what happened three books ago. Mm -hmm. And the fact I mean, within a series of books for children, the close reading character is really important to pay attention to because this is a book that is teaching you about reading. And what it's teaching you is that Hermione is the good reader, the reader you should be emulating. So God bless you, Hermione. And now, dear listeners, against the sound of the roaring flames, we bring you final revisions. This week, it's my turn to ask questions and Marcel's turn to answer. Okay, I'm going to ask you this question first because it's the most important question. If we have time, I'll add one more why does Harry see Thestrals for the first time at the beginning of this book?
0: Oh man, this is such a great question and it doesn't, oh my God, this bothers me so much. As a close reader, I am so annoyed by the like narrative incoherence that results in Harry seeing Thestrals for the first time. I know that we've never escorted the students home from hogwarts so we don't know how they get from hogwarts to the hogsmeade ex- or to the hogwarts express in hogsmeade mm-hmm. it's possible that they walk but why would they walk there with their trunks and shit when at the beginning of the school year they're flown there in seemingly horse's carriages i don't know is it just that every single student rides the boats back like the first year's unclear it doesn't I don't know so we don't see Harry encountering Thestrals at the end of book four okay fine but then there's also the important point about the fact that Harry's mother died in front of him when he was a one-year-old right
1: you could say maybe he didn't see that right maybe he didn't look at that but he sure as fuck was looking at
0: Quirrell when Quirrell died yeah so, like, that's another, like, did Harry just, like, pass out? Maybe Harry passed out before Coral actually, like, died, died? Like, maybe there's something about needing to see the person's, like, like actually expire and maybe Coral, like, died more slowly. Like, there's just so much incoherence in the Thestrals being something that you only see once you've seen someone die and the fact that Harry has, by this point, seen three people die mm-hmm. and like, those other two need to be explained away real hard.
1: I have one other question for you. It's a really hard question. All ready? Mm-hmm. Who is a better feminist? Mrs. Weasley or Hedwig?
0: I have a preliminary answer, which is then going to be complicated by the, by the next book. I believe that at this point in time, Mrs. Weasley and Hedwig are both exceptional feminists who do different types of work and enact feminism differently, but at no point does either of them perform any kind of anti-feminism.
1: Oh, somebody going to perform anti-feminism?
0: It's definitely Mrs. Weasley. Like she, she behaves in some ways that I find questionable, um, in the next book. So, ah, damn, you know what though? no. No. Mrs. Weasley is a real shitty feminist at the beginning of this book, too, because when she doesn't want Harry to um, she doesn't want Harry and Ron and Hermione to be there for the discussion with Sirius and the rest of the order. And when she loses that battle, she takes out her anger on the only other woman in the room who is less powerful than she is, which is Ginny. And she forces Ginny to leave the room and go to bed, even though Ginny is one year younger than them. And honestly, there's like, we don't learn any information in that meeting that would have done any harm to Ginny. So you know what? Mm, It's Hedwig. It's definitely Hedwig because Mrs. Weasley takes out her disempowerment by disempowering other women. Not always, but sometimes. And it makes me not happy. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 9a of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohichplease.ca or subscribe to us on iTunes. Shoutouts to Hedwig Flies Again for giving us a five star review and also for having the best username of all time. If you want to be cool like Hedwig Flies Again, you should also review us. Reviews and ratings tell the iTunes algorithm machine about our inevitable world dominance, which is a good thing. Also, check out our Tumblr, .tumblr ohwitchplease.tumblr.com. You should also know that our Tumblr curator, Jason Purcell, has a wonderful YouTube channel on which he recently interviewed, Yours Truly's, and he is the best, and we love him. And now, as always, we send love and admiration to the robot of our hearts... Trevor Chow Fraser.
1: Hi, how are you doing? Don't forget, witches, if you want to see us live and in person with extra special special guest Neil Barnholden, then you should come to what it turns out is called the Edmonton Comic and Entertainment Expo, where we will be speaking on Saturday, September 27th at 4.30 p.m. Whether or not you can make it in the flesh, please also consider joining us at our lively Twitter community at Owitch Please, where we sometimes answer questions, but mostly just retweet super smart things our followers say. You will meet the coolest people there. And here are some examples. <laughs> this first one is unpronounceable.
0: Efyas, S. You think so? ifya S? I mean it turns out that we have followers in Germany, so it's probably just not an English thing, but it probably makes a lot of sense if you're like Swiss or German or Belgium.
1: I, we're being very North American right now. That's why I pronounce the J. There's a J in there, which I pronounce as Y, which was my attempt to be <laughs> European. I'm going to stick with if Mayu's Teapot, Megan K. Upstate, Cat Lady Pizza, Ms. Laura Lipstick, Mrs. Friday Next, Debbie Kinsey, Jenny B., Trevor Chow Fraser, Virginia Woof, L. Ligterink, The Brie May, Pewter Wolf 13 Neapolitan, Proletarian Arts, Basil, Surinoth, Is a Grapefruit, Chelsea Chan, P.H. Darrett, Alan Matley, Nemel's Winter, Bookish Spoony, Bridget Stemler, Terry Lee McGarry, J V Purcell, Laura Bast, Flo Dot, Ellen Ora, T Valinilla Mar Shameless, S Maracuja, Reed Susie Reed, Fluwer with three R's, <laughs> Emily Hoven, Katarina Mary, Matt Domville, Book Vacuum, Rosetta D'Souza, Angry Care Bear, The Kalesa, I.M.V. Blankvist, J. Kate B., Karina Soros, Atiyah Abbas, Shuggins, or S.C. Huggins. Can you let us know how to pronounce that? That would be helpful. Doesn't Believe You. M. Reads Books, Short to the Point, K. Melosh 2, Cara Paparo, The Softest Bunny, Nordsee Blau, All That Matters, CJSR, Savannah Goyette, Katie Hasenbank, Broken Tape Deck, Andrew Brett's 001, Khaleesi's and Amazon's Podcast, Book Vacuum, Trent Alumni, Tardis of Baker Street, which Ooh. definitely nailed the Twitter handle game, and Callie Lim. After the flames die out, we shall create a new world together, and it will be a thing of beauty.
0: I always think it's a thing of beauty when Hannah reads the Twitter users, because not only do I not have to read them, but she always does a really good job pronouncing the ones that I have so much trouble pronouncing. Stay tuned for our next episode, which may or may not be a live episode. We haven't figured it out yet because math. Uh, But until then,
1: later witches.